awesome. Yeah. Okay, so um, you know that this was entitled like Culture War Christianity, and we're going to talk a bit about that, but we got to do a little kind of groundwork first to do a bit of theology of culture together. And um, maybe I'll start with a prayer room story, which might seem tangential, but I think it will have some points of application and connect. Um, I remember 15 years ago, I was like traveling around the country, leading these like 24-7 houses of prayer gatherings, and those were really, really fun times. I remember one time I got invited to this church to do like a two-hour prayer set to work with their local leaders, and this church was about 70 per- Liberian. So African, right? Liberia is a country in, in Africa. And they're about 70% Liberian and maybe 30%, you know, Midwestern white people. Okay. So I instantly, as I walk into the space, we were huddled up to do prayer before prayer, which is kind of a funny thing. Like we all gathered for prayer before the prayer room thing started. And um, I was expecting, we all huddled up in a circle, and I was expecting to do kind of like the, how do I put this nicely? I was expecting to kind of do the thing white people do when they circle up in prayer, (laughs) which is like, let's clearly lay out who's opening the prayer, who's closing the prayer, and if there's any dead silence for more than seven seconds, somebody better jump in. You guys know the drill on that, right? So the pastor was like, all right, we're going to pray together. And I was like, all right, now who's setting the agenda? And everybody in the circle just started praying at the same time. I was like, whoa, what? what you, you can't do that. And then I took a step back as this was happening, and it was like, man, this is actually really beautiful, and it kind of makes a lot of sense. Why are we taking turns? This doesn't leave any room for, like, the prayer that's actually a sermon prayer or the prayer that's actually, like, a gossip prayer. You guys have all been in those, those prayer circles before, right? Um, And everybody was just praying at one time, and it actually made a lot of sense. Like, God's hearing these prayers all over the globe all the time. I think he can handle it. It was really, really beautiful. I really enjoyed that part. There was another part I didn't enjoy so much because it really really kicked me in the ego. So I'm going up to do my two-hour set, and I've got my acoustic guitar, and I'm doing my, like, soaking set, and it's, you know, four chords, and 90% of them are minor chords, and it's it's beautiful. I'm Like, I'm really feeling it. 30% of the room is feeling it, but I'm noticing about 35 minutes in or so that the Liberians are falling asleep. (laughs) (laughs) And so I get, I'm like, all right, well, that's all right. It's a soaking set. You know, people can sleep during this. Well, the Liberian pastor comes up about 45 minutes in. He puts his hand on my shoulder. He's like, thanks. He takes takes the microphone and he goes, everybody wake up. And then he just starts singing, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This, and everybody stood up, all the Liberians stood up, they started clapping. And I was like, I don't know if I play along. <laughs> and they just, they just went for it. And I just kind of stopped playing. I took my guitar off. I was like, I don't think I'm needed here. Went back into the congregation. And you know what? Um, that was like a cultural collision in some sense. I had this idea of what was meaningful I had this framework that I experienced God's presence in, wow. and it wasn't meaningful to them. Wow. You know, and honestly, what they did wasn't meaningful to me. Yeah. So wow. 
What are the differences here? What shapes those kinds of differences? What is it? What are the vehicles that God uses to make us unique? What factors shape humans psychologically and spiritually? I'm going to slide the whiteboard. I don't want to cover up this really beautiful background that it's really good. Somebody knows how to do graphic design around here really slick. All right, so we could talk about like three arenas, three domains in which God works through all of these things, but there are three arenas in which our individuality is shaped, all right? The first one is just our human nature. Okay, if you were studying the animal kingdom, like, and you were an expert in dolphins. You could say there are these common features that all dolphins have, even though there's a bunch of different kinds of dolphins. Same thing with dogs. You can study different kinds of birds, and you go, well, they have these sorts of instincts. It's like hardwired into them. And humans are the same way. We have a universal human nature, and we could talk about this in scientific terms. We could talk about this in theological terms. We are all descendants of Adam, right? So human nature is universal, and it's inherited. And some of these things that are just universal to humans, like we have these universal desires, like all of us want to eat because we want to stay alive. Like we all want to survive. Typically, this isn't the case all the time, but generally speaking, most humans want to procreate too. That's just part of human nature. We're also hardwired to be a social species, okay? We are wired for community. Humans don't do, like, living as lone wolves very well. We're made for each other. You probably figured this out over the last couple of years, right? When you were, like, sitting in your boxers for the 10th straight day on another Zoom meeting, you're like, even if you're an introvert, you were like, gosh, I need to see some people here. This is not healthy. This is not normal. We all went through that, right? So we've got human nature. It's universal. It's inherited. We also have our unique personality. And we could also say like genetic wiring, right? That's individual. Individual, let's do some spelling. What happens when the red squiggly line doesn't show up? Right? Like you're so used to typing or, you know, you forget how to spell. So we've got a unique personality and genetic makeup to us that we're just born with. It's unique to us. Um, And you can discover some of these things about yourself. There's a degree in which our personality is like malleable, but a lot of it, we're just baked. It's baked into us. Parents, you know this. Like, yeah. you've got, if you've got multiple kids in your house, you're like, they all grew up in the same house. Why are they so different? And you can see it at a very young age right away. Yeah. Yeah. So you can use some tests, like personality profile tests, maybe the Enneagram, Myers-Briggs, Big Five personality test. There's all sorts of things which can help you uncover maybe those unique ways in which you're hardwired. So that's individual. It's inherited. So, so far, we're talking about two things that are kind of like hardwired into us. So why is there all of this difference? 
And this is the layer we really want to focus in on tonight, and it's culture. So culture is learned, it's not inherited, and it's specific, not universal. It's specific to the social group, the family you were born into. Is that making sense? Yeah. Culture is where human nature and personality find their unique expressions, and they take a unique shape. So culture is, this in, is a word that describes the entire way of life for a given group of people. And all cultures have some core ingredients. And we're going to talk about maybe some of the differences between like macro cultures, like we might say, you might hear people talk about like, well, in the West, and they're talking about like Western civilization, or you might think about American culture, macro cultures. There's also subcultures. Like we, would, we could say like evangelical Christianity is a subculture in America, yeah. right? And then under that, you could say, well, you might use some labels even to describe your own church community. Like we might be evangelical. We might be charismatic, which is like another distinction, you know, or Pentecostal or whatever terminology you want to use. So all cultures, they have these core ingredients. What makes a culture a culture? Hopefully you had time to write some of this stuff down already. Yeah. I'm going to do some erasing. A lot to cover. And what we're going to do here is we're going to kind of split this up into two sessions here. We'll do some of these basics, and then we'll, um, we're going to spend more time in our Bible in the second session here. So split this up. So what makes up culture? Culture is built up, oops, let's do a brighter pen here. Culture is built, you never know with the uh, dry erase pens. All cultures have a guiding story. We're storied creatures. That's another thing that makes us unique as, as people, right? When we're born into this world, our primary caretakers, for most people, it's their parents, Maybe for some of you, your grandparents and aunt or uncle. Like, they didn't give you, like, an Excel spreadsheet with a bunch of statistics, equations, and formulas mm -hmm. to help explain the world to you, right? Yeah. What did they tell you? Bedtime stories, mm. Bible stories, Aesop's fables, Veggie Tales, McGee and me, for some of you old enough to remember hey. that, all right? And these <gasps> stories tell us about these deep questions that we don't get born into the world with answers about. Like, what is the point of all this? Yeah. Like, tell me my place in this story. What does, a good, what does the good life actually look like? And so cultures tell guiding stories about what the purpose and goal of life is and what your place is in, in it all. So we got a guiding story. We also have values. We, these values often emerge from the stories that we're told. Mm. And they're like, sometimes they're not, again, it's not listed off at, in like an, a spreadsheet way where we hear a story, um, let's say like a, a, a Bible story, for example, a story of David and Goliath, which is one of my favorites as a kid, and I watched like the Hanna-Barbera cartoon. Did anybody ever see the Hanna-Barbera, David and Goliath stories? Derek, Margot, and Moki, they travel through time and... Yeah, okay, all right. 
um, or Superbook. Oh, yeah. Like the original anime <laughs> Superbook. Okay? I love the, the David and Goliath story. But never did I hear that story, someone just list off on a spreadsheet, well, this is what David's virtues were, and this was his strengths and weaknesses. They were embedded in the story, and they were, we are so, we handle these stories in such a unique way that we can extract that stuff out of the story, and what we get out of the story are values, values about what our life should be aimed towards. What's the most important thing that we should value? So let's think of like American culture, for example. One of our chief values in American culture is a word, and it's kind of squishy. It can have lots of different meanings to lots of different people. It's freedom. Wouldn't you say that that's a very big value of American culture? Yeah. And that's not to pass any value judgment on it, but it's just stating matter of fact. Freedom is one of our big values. When you think about it, it's embedded into our culture's guiding stories. The story of freedom. What's the story you learn about in the Revolutionary War? All right, in the Declaration of Independence. These foundational stories tell you a story about a people that were willing to fight for their freedom, right? That might be the common story you hear. But that story also resonates with us in a bunch of different places where stories are told to us, and they're not like directly about America, but the value resonates with us. Star Wars. The rebellion, fighting against the empire. It's the same thing as the colonies against the king of England, right? I mean, that story resonates with us in a way that other cultures might go, well, those, the rebels were terrorists, you know. So we, don't, we won't get off on a Star Wars tangent here. But there's a lot of different places where we get told guiding stories that resonate with us and we come out of that story with values. But that's not all. It's not just that people tell us stories. It's not just that we can extract from those stories values. But we also have customs and practices that reinforce the guiding story. We're talking about America, and we're going to do some comparative analysis between like American, you know, traditional American values and the values of what we might say are the kingdom of God in a little bit. But let's think about uh, one of the customs in America that we're all familiar with. And it still happens today, right? You can go to just about any school in America, an elementary school, and how do they start their day? I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States. That's a custom. It's a custom that's enforcing values and pointing you towards a story, right? We do this in church, too. You know, we're a few weeks away from Palm Sunday. A lot of churches give kids palm branches on Palm Sunday, and they sing Hosanna. Why? Because we're trying to instill the values and tell that story in a unique way, but we don't just tell the story, we learn about the story and we embed ourselves in the story through customs and practices like that. And when you start looking around, you start seeing these things everywhere. Customs and practices that support the values and the guiding story. And the last thing, we can talk about more, but these are 
the most essential that we want to focus on are symbols. So what do you do when you start elementary school with the Pledge of Allegiance? You face what? Not just a blank wall. What do you face? A flag. It's a symbol. You know, when people, people get really, really upset in lots of pockets of American culture, if you were to ever do something like burn a flag, right? But I could burn a t-shirt, which is made of the same fabric, and no one would be upset about that, right? Yeah. Why are people upset about the flag? It's not the material thing. It's that the flag is a symbol yeah. of values and a story that we say this is deeply, many people say this is deeply, deeply important to us. And how do we see that importance? It's expressed in symbols. And we're surrounded by these symbols all the time. We're surrounded by them in church. Yeah. We use, I mean, like people in the first century would have been astonished that they would go to a bunch of buildings and see an accrued instrument of execution hanging on walls and around people's necks because that's what the cross was. But the cross is an important symbol to us as followers of Jesus, right? Yeah. You know, and people treat those symbols, and they can border on idolatry at times, but they treat those symbols with a degree of reverence, not because the, the do we have one? I'm sure there's one in here somewhere. Yeah, right behind me, okay? It's not because, like, the wood that it's made of itself is holy. It's because it points to something that we deeply revere. So this can be in the arts, right? And all of this stuff. So in many ways, like, this stuff is in some sense invisible. And this stuff is the visible manifestation of those things, right? Wow. You don't, like, what does freedom look like? That's a weird question. Or what is beauty as a value? Or generosity as a value? It's invisible. So it takes something to manifest that thing in what we might say flesh and blood, right? So what does a symbol of generosity look like? What is a symbol of compassion? What is a, and that can be a, a story that someone writes or a movie that they make or a play. Um, we already talked about this already, but we're never just part of one culture. We're never just part of one culture. So we have macro cultures, Again, like America, the West, we have subcultures that are underneath that. So we might say again, like evangelical culture is a subculture. If you grew up Catholic, like the Catholic Church has a very different, in some ways similar, but there's differences between Catholic culture and evangelical culture. Anybody in here grow up Catholic? A couple of people? So there's differences, right? There's differences in how they tell the story. There's differences in practices. There's harmony in some places, and there's some, some places there's dissonance. But you also have micro-cultures. So you've got subcultures, which are still larger groups of people, and then you've got micro-cultures, like uh, your local church. Right here, I almost said Grove, every day, there's a culture here. You guys tell the story of Scripture in a way that's unique. It's not, like, detached. You know, it's not like you guys are making it up here. It's connected to other places and spheres of influence in your life, but it takes a unique shape here, yeah. right? Yeah. And you guys do have unique practices here. And there might be things that you really, really value that are beautiful that you might go, well, the church down the road is a really good church too, or 
the other church that actually meets here is a really good church too, but we're doing something that really celebrates this value of the kingdom of God, right? And a lot of times churches will state those values. You guys probably have explicitly stated values that you're running after. And that happens in families as well. So those are micro and local cultures. All right, the important thing I want to communicate at this point is that there is no culture-free revelation from God. There is no culture-less revelation from God because we are always inextricably linked in culture. So there's no way that God's word can be received or the spirit can speak to us without it being in cultured communication. Even the mere fact that when you pick up your Bible and read it, you're reading it in a language that was produced by culture. You know, and we could go, well, that's not the original language. Well, let's get back to the original language. Did the Apostle Paul invent Greek? Was like, no, that was the language the Apostle Paul wrote when he was writing to Ephesus or writing to the church at Corinth. When Jesus spoke, he likely spoke in Aramaic. He didn't, I mean, he didn't invent the language. It existed before the incarnation. Okay, so all revelation, this is God's, and we can look at that and go, oh man, I don't know how I feel about that. This is the way God lovingly communes with us, is in the spaces that we inhabit. When the Spirit inspired the biblical authors to write, beautiful piece of poetry by David in the Psalms, right? He's writing in conventions of his day, and when he picks up his liar to play, I'm not playing, none of you guys aren't playing a liar on Sunday morning anymore, right? You know, he didn't, he didn't have like an electric guitar with delay pedals. It was different. Yes. But it was the way God disclosed himself to David in that time or Paul when he was writing to a church in Corinth. All of these things, even like the most weird abstract images of the scripture, whether it was like Ezekiel's vision with the wheels. I bet that was meaningful to Ezekiel, even though we might struggle with it. Revelation is the same way. People get really wigged out by the book of Revelation, but it actually just follows typical conventions of a genre in the first century called apocalyptic literature. We look at it and we go, that's so strange what's happening there. But when this letter was disseminated to the seven churches in Asia Minor, I don't think they were going, what is this about, man? You know, it's hard for us. We have to step back into their culture to try to understand that. Now, there's a point I want to, like, I really want to emphasize here about culture again being the gift of God. It's one of the good purposes in God's creation that doesn't even seem to dissolve in the restoration of all things at the end of the age. So I would like you, if you do have your Bible, we could look at together Revelation 21. Give you a hint, it's very very much near the end of your Bible. <laughs> Revelation 21. And we're going to look at verses 22. Oh, thank you, Mel. Verses 22 to 26. 
this is a picture John is getting of how human history is going to come to a close and God is going to complete his redemptive project in creation. And this is like the final scenes of that um, consummation of all things. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city had no, has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God has illuminated it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In daytime, for there will be no night, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. Even at the end of the age, we still have diversity of nations and peoples. And it's a gift. It's beautiful. There is not, I want to, I'm going to circle back to this point when we kind of get into the second session. But if you're a follower of Jesus, and you treat the scriptures as authoritative, and you are looking forward to that picture, the perfect consummation of heaven and earth, you cannot believe that the kingdom is going to come through just one culture. Right. And that one culture should reign supreme over the entire world. There's no room for that. That's not the picture we have. We have diversity of nations and cultures, the kings of the world, bringing their unique gifts. And so when I'm thinking back to my experience with my Liberian brothers and sisters, I can celebrate the gift that they brought. And maybe I need a little bit less of my slow, plodding, four-chord, minor dirges. And maybe I need to get up and like learn how to stomp my feet and clap my hands a little bit. Right? It's a gift. So there is not a single, single culture that's going to be the one culture that rules and reigns on this planet. So I want to do a little bit of an exercise here, and this is where, um, you know, if you're seated, maybe a little spaced out from somebody, it'd be good to um, snuggle up next to somebody. And we're, I'd like to invite you in a moment here to huddle up in maybe groups of three to four with people around you. And we're going to do a little exercise here. If you have pen and paper, or if you want to open up a note on, on your iPhone or your smartphone to, to work on a couple questions together, I want to get you talking together. So I want to ask a set of questions here, and I really want to encourage you to not pass any judgment as you're having discussion on whether the features of your conversation are good or bad. I want you... And I want you to think as American as possible, whatever that comes, whatever comes to mind when you picture as American as possible. Here's the first question. So huddle up right now in a group with people around you, and I'm going to give you a few minutes to have some discussion about this, and then we're just going to share your answers. And there will be no wrong answers here. This is all, we're brainstorming. We're working through something together. All right, here's the first question I want you guys to have some discussion about, and I hope that you could put it together and maybe two to three sentences max, all right? The first question is this. In just a few sentences, what is the core essential story of America? What would you say is the core story of America? If you were to like try to summarize what America is all about in a story, and again, I want you to think like Americans. No passing judgment one way or the other, whether you're like, you know, you wear American flag t-shirts on the 4th of July, or whether you think this is, you know, a terrible country, whatever the case may be, I want you to think like 
an American, no passing judgments, and I just want you to try to really wrestle with what would you say as American culture is the guiding story of America, okay? So I'm gonna give you about three or four minutes here. This is a tough question. Try to put it together in maybe a few sentences. How would you surmise what is the story of America if you were to tell it to somebody else? I don't want to cut off conversation. This is certainly something I hope you guys continue to do after and, you know, keep having conversations about this. But we've got a few other things we need to talk about, too. But first, I do want to hear, and I will, you know, if, if there are people bold enough to, to share maybe a summation of what your, your group maybe came to, at least in the short time that you had, I'll, I'll walk around and, and hand you the mic, or you can just shout out from where you are. You just raise your hand. Does anybody from a group want to share? Yeah. Freedom and independence, um, that like it's all about individuality. Like at the beginning, it was freedom and that we became independent from somewhere else and that in that we were the underdog and we really pride ourselves on how hard we can work and where we can go. And it's kind of turned into um, like, well, America is all about like working yourself to the bone and we're very proud of how hard we're working, but it's also all about yourself and if it doesn't work for you then you move on to whatever like will serve you the best so we kind of started out with first of like what was the beginning of our country but now like what are these like main themes that we're seeing so it's like freedom independence hard work and individuality are like the main themes that we see awesome all right anybody else Nobody wants to follow that. No. It's really good. Okay. Yeah, the word underdog came up too for us, but just the Cinderella story, I think in sports and in business and in all spheres of life, if there's a story of someone who didn't have something and then they rose and now look at them, um, we love to celebrate those people. And uh, they're the heroes. Yeah. Great one. That's why I love Rocky so much. Right? I'll, I'll run the microphone. Okay. Yeah. I'll show. All right. Uh, America is a place where. Yeah, that's a good one. Pursuit of happiness. Um, that was obviously like what Jefferson tweaked in the Declaration of Independence, though he was essentially, I believe he was stealing the other. Um, you know, life, liberty, yeah, stealing from John Locke. Life, liberty, property. Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. That's a good one to bring up. You said something else about individual achievement. Yeah. Um, that's a big one, too. Um, there was a guy in the 20th century. He was a Dutch social psychologist. His name was Hirt Hofstede. I'm not going to say that again. Sorry. And he worked with IBM as, like, post-World War II. There was certainly a lot more of, in the business world, in the corporate world, international communication happening, international business happening. And people were really struggling with, well, how do these different cultures end up talking to each other? Not just, because it's not just language barrier, it's value barrier. Mm. And so what they ended up doing, Hasvidi working with IBM, is they actually um, categorized 
the core values of these macro cultures. Mm -hmm. So they did 150 some nations and they ranked them along things like individualism versus collectivism, risk aversion. Do you want to take a guess as to who scored highest for individualism in the whole world? USA, USA, you know. So like Australia's was really high, um, you know, and places like Japan are very low on that. They value collectivism. So if you've ever visited some of these different places, you start to realize, well, it's not just a language barrier. We've got, we've got value differences here, right? These are really good. We could talk all night about this, but for the sake of time, I want to move on to the next question here. Um, next question, and I think we maybe just have you shout out some of these that come to mind, because we already got some values listed. Um, tell me a couple core customs or rituals that make you American. American customs, American rituals. It could be holiday celebrations. Just shout one out if you think of one. Fireworks, 4th of July. National anthem, right? It's really weird when you think about it, you know? Like, it's not, like, that's interesting. Also, the halftime show is weird. I've never gone to a concert and they played a football game at the intermission between bands. I just think it's so strange. Like, but hey, yeah, national anthem. Yeah, national anthem. And again, I, we're gonna, I don't want to get into the, like, you're going to have to turn off your culture war radar detector here. But what happens if somebody doesn't demonstrate the proper symbols of devotion when the national anthem is happening at a football game? Yeah. There's problems, right? And again, I don't want to get into that culture war stuff. We're going to, but <laughs> um, you can see that it's not about the song. It's not about a fabric flag. People feel when that stuff happens, it's like, you're attacking my values. And the other person's going, no, I'm standing up for these other values. And it has to do with something as simple as a custom. Right? And it's not just a simple custom. It's really, really deep and profound. Right? Those are a couple of really good ones. All right, now we're going to flip you back into your groups for a few minutes. And I want to ask a different question here. And I have to acknowledge, as you're going to grapple, grapple with this question, we have to acknowledge we're incultured people we have been in, many of us have been in different cultures and subcultures, and it does impact the lens in which we read and understand the scriptures. Yeah. With all of that said, what I'd like you to do in those same groups is I want you to try to conceive of the kingdom of God as a culture. What is the essential guiding story of scripture? What is the essential guiding story? If you were to distill the meta-narrative of Scripture into a few sentences, huddle up now. I'm going to give you another three minutes to chat because this is going to be a fun conversation here. Distill the Scriptures into a story. Okay, again... We acknowledge, you know, we are incultured people. We're not going to tell this story perfectly, but we're going to do our best, right? And what we have to bring to the story in our unique culture might be a beautiful contribution, too, you know? So um, how would you sum up the story of Scripture? And again, we'll just shout them out instead of passing around the mic. Beautiful. Love it. Tough job to summarize the whole thing in 
a few words. That was really good. Ooh, yeah, sweet. All right. Everybody else, tell the story. Yeah. Love, forgiveness, and redemption. Those are some pretty core values, right? Love, forgiveness, redemption. Someone else tell, see if you can try to put it in a, um, in a story here, right? Like, this is what we're trying to, like, when we come to church, and we raise our kids, or if you're in teaching a class, you lead in a small group, you're trying to tell people the story, right? So this is good work to try to wrestle with this. I mean, essentially, that's, that's what, like, the earliest church hymn, the Christ hymn in, in Philippians 2, is all about, right? That descent down, yeah. Self-sacrifice, yeah. Yeah. Laying down your life for someone else, right? Any others? How would you tell the story? Yeah. Yeah. God's pursuit, if you weren't able to hear, God's pursuit of us, right? And that calling back for us to pursue other people in the way that we've been pursued. That's a beautiful way of summing that up. Okay, we could go on and on trying to figure out ways. I'm sorry, you, you, you started to put your hand up. I think you have a good one. Go for it. Yeah. Go two for two. You were good on the last one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's it, yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times in theology, people talk about the four-phase story of, of Scripture. Creation, God made a good world, but there's brokenness, the fall. Redemption is the third phase, and the consummation of all things is the fourth phase, right? There's a whole narrative of Scripture there. So I put this up on the board, and I'm sorry if the green isn't as legible, because one of the things that's maybe just an instructive exercise for us to do is to look at, we acknowledge that we live in a macro culture, and when we look at our culture, and we try to be people that recognize, like, our primary allegiance is to the kingdom of God, and when we recognize that, we go, there may be points of harmony and there may be points of dissonance between the culture that we inhabit and the culture of the kingdom of God. And when you put it side by side, you might be able to point out some things that you might say, well, there's harmony here and there could be dissonance here. So just looking at this, let's start on the positive note. It's very easy, like I'm, I'm an old geriatric millennial it's very easy. Millennials love to critique. Like, we love to critique, but let's start with maybe some areas that we might go and say, hey, there's harmony here and things we could actually celebrate about the unique thing God's doing in American culture that we want to cling to, right? Yeah. So is there anything that you see is in harmony? Yeah. Definitely. We love those stories. We love those stories. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And we... Go ahead. Say again. Yeah. 
Yeah, and there is something about, and maybe there's something that we've lost in American culture about we were, we were the place for the immigrant and the refugee and the value of giving them a space. And, but there's a lot of bad stuff in the past, too, where we made, um, we brought people to this continent with no intentions of their good. And we have to come face to face with that dissonance too. But there is something there. We could go, well, we could cling to that and go, all right, whatever that Statue of Liberty thing stands for, there could be something good about that that we want to hold on to and like continue to celebrate and affirm. Like God might be doing something in our culture that we want to cling, keep. Right? Dissonance. Points of dissonance. Anybody see any? Yeah. So there's a way in which like we can interpret freedom as the freedom to do whatever I want and nobody's going to tell me otherwise. Not saying that's the universal way Americans all of Americans value freedom, but that certainly can be one mode in which people interpret that. There ain't no room for that in the kingdom of God. There isn't. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Any others? Points of dissonance, yeah. Yeah. We can't see that our, sometimes our happiness is inextricably linked with the happiness and well-being of someone else, yeah. which is that's at the core of the kingdom of God. Um, Paul chastised the church at Corinth and the whole thing about, you know, you better come to the communion table with, in the right manner. You know, as a kid, I heard that all the time. I was like, do I have some secret unconfessed sin? <laughs> do you know what was going on there? Read that. It's 1 Corinthians 14, 12, 13. I don't know. I'm always bad with numbers. Somewhere in that range, right? What's happening there at the church of Corinth is that they're supposed to be one community together. But in that first century Hellenistic world, people that were on the lower rungs of the social ladder... They didn't get off work even on Sundays till later in the day. So what was happening at the church potluck, because that's what originally communion was, it was a potluck, the church came together, and what was happening was the rich people were getting there on time. They were eating all the food and even getting drunk on the wine. And Paul tells them, you guys can have your own private parties. Remember, remember your baptism that you guys are now all part of one family together. You know, so anyways, there's a, there's a lot there. Um, would like to do, just give everybody here um, 30 second stretch break. I want to give an extra special Take thanks to my friends over at Everyday Church who hosted me through this now. event and this um, class. I really enjoyed the time I had time, with them kind of and I'm thankful for the opportunity to get to speak into the their community. This, this is part one of this lecture entitled Culture War Christianity. Part two will be coming out in probably a week or so. And so in that that particular episode, we'll dive a lot more into a little bit of the, the history of culture war Christianity, why it's failed, why I propose a better way forward. And I hope you will listen to that part as well. I want to give an extra special thanks to those who have been supporting this podcast and ensuring that it can continue ad-free, especially those who are in our Theology 201 groups or higher. So I want to give that extra special thanks to Clint, Jesse, Alex, BJ, Daniel, Dave, Eli, Elise, J. 
Jesse, John Mark, John Michael, Johnny, Josie, Justin, Kirk, Lola, Luke H., Matthew, Michael Hernstein, Mike Thomas, Paul Spencer, Paul Reese, Rob, Sam P., Sarah R., Stephen H., Taylor S. Thank you all for your generous support. We will have discussion forums available for this part and for part two. So if you wanted to contribute in the comments section, I'd love to especially hear from you on, you know, how you would respond to these questions that we uh, proposed to the to the live group here in attendance that evening. How would you surmise the American meta story, the guiding story of American culture? How would you summarize the guiding story of what you perceive to be the story of scripture? Where do you see points of resonance? Where do you see points of dissonance? I'd love to read your comments in the discussion forum available on our Patreon page. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.